welcome to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast for three dungeon masters who've been doing this for way too long. Talk about all the things we do to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. Everybody's working for the weekend. Because you weekend? what do you do on your weekends? For me, DM Dave, what I do... Is I get a little of my, my downtime. That's what I get. You get downtime? You get weekends? You guys get weekends? Bit. I freelance. I do. Oh. I do. I work very hard during the week, so my weekends are generally uh, pretty open. Well, downtime, yeah, it's an important thing. You need your breaks. And theoretically, so do your player characters, or at least so they say. No, so they we have, know. this is the debate. Do you give your players downtime? And if so, what do you do with them? And what kind of shenanigans do they get into? But before we get to that, though, I think we have to deal with this. This, this came up This came up hot on the social media feeds where Dave posted an article, and I think it's a great article, about Schrodinger's encounter or Schrodinger's campaign, Schrodinger's DM prep that apparently stumbled upon an argument we weren't even really aware of called the quantum ogre. So Dave, can you give us a quick recap of uh, just, just a quick insight on what your article was about? Well, yeah, I mean, it, we kind of went over, I, I decided to take one of our, what I thought was our super original trademarked things, Schrodinger's Encounter, and break it out into an idea of how do you take all the prep that you do and make it worthwhile so that you didn't spend eight hours building out the Wizard's Tower and then your players never go to it. Well, the Wizard's Tower can exist and not exist, Schrodinger's, anywhere in your world. So if you need, you know, the players are heading to an area and there's a wizard's tower going to be there. Okay, well, now I could take the one that used to be in the town of boredom, as I said it, and put it in the town of Plotfall, right? <laughs> and there you go. Boom. Done. No, no big deal. Um, and I broke it out into the idea of not only Schrodinger encounter and our, our idea of planned encounters, right? Planned random encounters. Hmm. Um, but then Schrodinger City to go over Tony's terrible hatred of building out a town ever again. Uh, and then Schrodinger's like big boss, you know, the idea that Thor and you had come up, stumbled on as you're, you know, we're grinding out levels. And then all yeah. of a sudden, Hey, uh, my goblin boss is going to get chewed up by one character, much less seven of them. Right. So all of a sudden he's a hobgoblin now, or that he's a whatever. Right? Or he's possessed by, by, by a level six demon. I mean, yeah, how far we go? As, yeah. as we do, we shared it out there, and uh, yeah, we stumbled upon this uh, thing that none of us were ever aware of, and we do a lot of D and D stuff. That's all I'm saying. I have to admit, I think I had heard the term quantum ogre before. I did not get involved in the discussion, and it was was before we kind of got back into DM to D and D heavily. So you know, it just goes to show you can't know every discussion everyone's having across the board about Dungeons and Dragons, even when you play it a lot like we do. But yeah, apparently there's been some Reddit threads where this idea of the quantum ogre, which is pretty much when we talk about moving your encounter back and forth from it's in room A or room B, or room B that's the quantum ogre. Your, your ogre is in whatever room the players open rather than in one room within the dungeon, which is something part of what we talked about here. Although obviously the Schrodinger's encounters are applying the whole thing to campaign building. And some uh, some readers in this case, this, this is an article on our website, did take exception to it because they're because they felt like the quantum ogre takes agency away that if there's no real choice you should not give the players a choice as a mostly improv dm i think the players may be very disappointed 
if they knew how my dungeon's coming together as they open door <laughs> A or B. Not to say that I'm moving things I was planning between those doors, but it might be a literal like, yeah, what could be behind this door? Ogre it is. Absolutely. I think that is a dangerous thing to play with, to be perfectly honest, because you never want to be in a situation where you remove the feeling of consequence from your game. That's so true. if you don't, if I'm in one respect, I don't want my players. We talked about teaching our players how the, the environment in your game works. I don't want them searching every room with a magnifying glass, tapping on every stone, you know, looking at the painting and trying to find a deeper meaning in the artwork. Because I've been in those games, and I'm like, guys, how about we move to the next room? Because that would be great if you did that. At the same time, if they don't feel there's anything to find, they're not going to search. Or if there's, you can go left or right, and you know you're going to find what you're looking for just going right, then you might as well go straight. Yeah, that's kind of the tricky part of this. And one of the, and I will say, so uh, some of the people who responded on these on, on on the Facebook groups where this was being discussed, a few of them did mention that the quantum ogre problem isn't really a problem for the DM. It's not a problem until the players realize the ogre was quantum in the first place. So long as the DM keeps this all gotcha. behind the screen and and keeps the facade up and keeps the lie going so long as you're not telling the truth about how you built your dungeon it's never an issue it's only a theoretical issue once the players find out though and i will say i've come up against a little bit of this with the woodstock wanderers where i've been very open about how i'm showing up and riffing off the cuff on what they do when players feel like what's going to happen is going to happen no matter what it is a problem you need to to create the feeling that they're actions matter and in fact their actions need to matter even if you're saying well hey i prepped the ogres they're around this area they're going to be here or there i'm going to throw some ogres in this tonight no matter what i do even if you're doing that you still need to have consequential pc decisions and it is a question how can you have that if you're going to put what you want to have wherever they want to go well that's what was interesting though too is that for me what it felt like uh was that I still think that there's a difference between what we're, when we talk about Schrodinger's mm. Encounter or Schrodinger's City or whatever, and this quantum ogre idea, because the res, like this particular responses that we're talking about, that would not have been what came out if they read through the article. Because mm. what I was actually saying was not that I want to remove agency, which I can understand, so that in essence, this quantum ogre idea is just the way in which to railroad players without them maybe realizing that they're being railroaded. So no matter what decisions they make, they're going to be going along the preordained adventure that you've decided. That's not at all what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is I've just spent, you know, a Saturday building out this awesome wizard's tower, let's say. And Mark Humes actually goes through this at one point in his DM 101 videos, goes over a little bit of the same idea with the Wizard's Tower. That doesn't mean I just, well, they never went to the Wizard's Tower, so I just have to throw that away. Well, no, that's in my that's in my tool bag now. That's in my kit. So I can always bring that back out in the same way that I kit bash together modules or 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 dungeons or something like that. Not that the players idea um choices don't have consequence or they can't sidestep uh encounters but that i always have the ability to make my time that i invested worthwhile yeah we talked about that rabbit hole and that could be extremely dangerous where you're just going off in a direction and you're designing all this stuff like why i have this dislike for towns and you know the shopkeeper knows the the headmaster for the wizard school and they go way back and you can uncover this relationship that they're up to no good and they're smuggling the town or you never go to that store and meet that guy 
and it never comes up ever. And there's a right. plot I'm just going to, like, you know, stuff in my sock drawer. And then what do you do with that guy? You're So let's say they decide to – they never meet that shopkeeper. Or as we said in the one post, they just yeet him off a cliff, right? Or they fireball <laughs> his shop or whatever, right? That's cool, and that's the thing. But so this whole really cool idea that you wanted to play with as a DM with with all of these secrets, well, what? So that's just dead in your world no matter what? I don't – it doesn't have to be. That could be known by other people and uncovered in other ways depending on where the players are. It's interesting to me that the entire conversation, because, and I think we're finding this with a lot of these online conversations around Dungeons and Dragons. In some cases, this is coming from uh, traumatized players. And when I say players here, I mean the big P players, players and DMs, yeah. people who engage with D&D. And what it comes from is, you know, you have some bad experiences and now you approach everything from the point of view, well, that's going to lead to the bad experience I had. So I think the bottom line is from a, if you're using if you're using a monster manual, aren't all those monsters quantum monsters? I mean, you're going to put them in somewhere. Anytime you have resources you've generated that you're going to use in your game, you're going to put in at some point in a nature that is relative that is that was not fixed. However, the player's enjoyment of the game and the enjoyment of these fanciful worlds, like I think of Tolkien, the players, you know, the reader's enjoyment of Tolkien and George R. R. Martin has a lot to do with the idea that this is a well thought out fixed world I'm exploring. And as I read more, I'm discovering more secrets that were there that I didn't know before. And I think sometimes, you know, when players have, have feel like they've been railroaded or they feel like they've had shallow worlds with adventures that are shoved through, they don't feel like the world is like that. And the truth is the way you get to worlds like that is you basically randomly put stuff where you want to put them and you web them together. You know, it's, it, there's a logic, there's an internal logic, but you start from the point of view of, okay, well, here's the kind of thing I want going on. How can I make the world do that? Oh, I'd make it like this. I decide what's there. I decide what's there. I fix these things in place, but they're not really fixed in place until you're done writing. And in fact, even if I look at someone like Tolkien or Martin, they're both changing major plot points and names right up until that book is published. There are places in the similar really, no, in unfinished tales, where character names literally change halfway through the stories. So Tolkien's Unfinished Tales. <laughs> and so what that was, was that was Christopher Tolkien, uh, right after the Silmarillion, I believe, he just pulled together some of his father's essays, and he published them literally specifically unedited, and just made that clear. Like, this is just exactly how my dad had this. And he put commentary around them, but he didn't fix them. Uh, he didn't polish them up. He didn't, he didn't like fix like names that were changing. So there's literally places where the names changed through the story because they weren't finished yet, and they were going to be finished on publication. And so the real question a, is, that's a good the, point though, Thorne. And that's in that sense, we talk about it a lot of times in terms of, are you watching a movie or are you making a movie? And right. it's that type of thing. If you want that book of fellowship and the twin towers, the two towers and the return of the King, that is after he developed every single bit of it. So if you want agency, you can't get the book. You have to be involved in the telling of the story. If you want player agency, if you want that as a player, you have to be involved hmm. in the building of that world or else I've already decided everything for you. And it's yeah, funny absolutely. too, our first episode was Traumatized Players where you guys brought up that idea. And I remember going, what the hell are you guys talking about? As I see sometimes these types of responses, I go, oh, there is a lot of traumatized. They have these, these bad experiences that they then they carry with them into the, and they, they over, they already kind of feel like they're going to run into that. So they don't, they're looking for those red flags in the relationship. Right. 
Well, and I would also say we're all carrying some trauma. There's, we've all had bad experiences that we're remembering as we come into things. And where it becomes kind of like this situation is, it's when you carry that, you know, you, you like, so that happened and you have a very strong opinion of why it happened and why you don't want it to happen again. Yeah. So you're now viewing everything from a very black and white point of view rather than understanding, rather than having understanding for, having patience for, or have, having some tolerance for the fact that the DM is making this stuff up, up as he goes or as she goes as well. I mean, you know, it's, it's traumatic is when you have a wizard for about three, three and a half years and he dies and can never come back. That's a little rough. Or when he comes I mean, back to the pile of bugs. No, that, that, he was still in the game. Now, this is where you lose a character you've had basically through all of high school and is gone forever and you can never play him again. That that was uh, that was a tough uh, gaming moment. But you know what? You know, you dry your eyes and you roll up another character and you move on. That is the nature of the beast. Yeah. I'd also say, so, I mean, and this, this gets down to the, because the core DM issue here is prep. You know, why do you want to use a quantum ogre? It's not because you want to railroad the characters. It's because you spent time on thing X or thing Y, and you don't really have the time, especially not if you're, you know, an adult with a job and a lot of stuff you're balancing. You don't have the time to develop 100% of the world when the players only see 15% of it. You can't mm -hmm. do it. You know, you got to have some boundaries. And then also you've got to be able to scale some stuff up level wise to make sure it's because you had the idea in the first level and now the 10th level. And if you still want to use this idea they're going to, you need to make it, you need to bring it up. It actually might come up in the letter later too. Uh, you know, how do you handle higher level random encounters? So I think players need to have a little bit of tolerance for that. I also think, and honestly, my biggest takeaway here is something some of the, you know, some of the folks in the Facebook group mentioned this. This is something you need to keep behind the screen. You know, even though you might yeah. be improving, even though you might be, you know, kind of generating your random ogres and putting them where you want them to go, you kind of can't let the players know. Because once you let the players know, it does ruin the players' enjoyment. Because now they feel like it didn't matter what I did. You were going to do what you were going to do anyway, even though the whole world's kind of been like that. It has to be because you are a human making <laughs> making this fantasy world. That That's kind of like when you have, if the DMs, if the players catch you fudging the die rolls in their favor. Yeah. Mm. So what yeah, if, they, if, if you see the, and another, uh, Thorne, you said uh, somebody else responded to, in essence, kind of saying, well, no, this is a, this is a valid uh, way to, to utilize your time. But they made the point that you don't want you, you don't want to know. We all go to a magician show realizing it's all tricks. And the fun is, is in not knowing how the trick worked, like not figuring it out. If you know what it is, well, then it's not as well, you still know it's a trick, but it's that suspension of disbelief. It's that it's that play. And I think that's where some of that is. Also, just to say, because we revolved around this idea multiple times in different episodes uh, in different ways. A lot of these kind of things, I feel like they come from people that aren't necessarily at the table often Could and be. or haven't actually run games often. So I remember it's like a lot of people who have a lot of ideas as, as to music and, and who's a sellout and who's not. And you realize that, oh, it's because they've never been road dogging it. Oh, they've never gigged. Oh, they've never had to try to make this thing work. Oh, they're just saying it pontificating from an armchair. And then you're like, oh, okay. That makes a little more sense now. Because you know? if you do this stuff enough, you're going to run into all of these things that we're talking about. Because that's why we're talking about them, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny because, you know, we mentioned Tony. You mentioned the, uh, or I guess Dave, you mentioned the the, the magician's trick. Yeah. And if either of you guys seen The Prestige, the movie The Prestige. Oh, love it. Because I think what we're talking, it's one, it's a great movie. It's got uh, Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. 
Yes. And they're playing competing magicians. And one of the concepts that Batman comes versus up, Wolverine. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With, exactly. with, with David Bowie making a cameo, frankly, it's it's it, but, but also uh, Alfred is in there. No Alfred is there. So <laughs> he is. Yeah. Michael, is. Michael Kine. It, it's a little bit of a slow burn, but I think it's a great movie. But one of the things that deal with so they're magicians pulling off. They're trying to kind of pull off more and more impressive tricks. One of the guys has an impressive trick. No one can figure out how he does. Uh, but they tell a story in the middle of it where they talk about this um, this old Chinese magician. And he had this thing where he would hobble along. He could barely walk. But then he would get on stage. He'd be very animated. And at one point, he produces this enormous fishbowl out of nowhere. You have no idea where the fishbowl came from. With live fish in it, full of water. He's on stage, and the magicians can't figure out how he did it. And they notice he's a little more lively on stage, a little more life, a little more, a little more, a little more dexterity, too. A little lighter on his feet. And then you see him coming out after the show, and he's walking to the carriage. He's hobbling to the carriage, little steps, little steps, little steps. And the magicians in the show, in the movie, put together that he actually, he has the fishbowl between his legs the all of his life. The trick isn't when he makes it appear on stage. That's just when he takes it out. The trick is his entire life that he lives with the fishbowl, so no one knows how he does his big trick. Now this does tie into something. I'm not going to spoil the movie because it's a really now that's movie. commitment. Jeez, that's commitment. Yeah, yeah. In DM that, like that. In, well, well, that's the problem. And that is somewhat the problem because that is exactly it. You're playing God at the table, and you know you're totally making it up. You're totally what happens happens because you said it happened, but you need to create the impression that what happens because that's the, what happened happened because that's the world and it's firm and the players have to live by these rules. And sometimes you got to carry the bit throughout the, uh, once you leave the table, you've got to keep up your commitment to the bit. Otherwise players start feeling like, you're, like uh, it's a quantum. You're all your plot points for quantum plot points are going to happen no matter what they did. So a little bit of this is your sometimes as DM, you got to be manager. And sometimes that means you got to keep up. You got to keep up your act, even when you're not at the table, just so the players don't lose their immersion. Um, or you don't, and you risk that they will, which sometimes, honestly, I do, because I kind of hate, honestly, personally, as a, I, I hate being the person who's constantly lying uh, outside of the game or inside the game. I'm a much more <laughs> honest person by nature. I want to tell you how I did it. Absolutely, right, yeah. That's what we're doing here. <laughs> so, exactly, right? That's that's why we started this podcast. For the DM, I would advise, if you're afraid of falling into a quantum trap, so to speak, then give your players some options but don't make it so open that you can't prepare properly and then you have to do – call that audible and uh, then move the wizard tower over you know, three kingdoms if that's a legitimate concern. I also think uh, one of the ways you can approach this, one of the ways I do tend to approach it is I'll come into a game not knowing what's going to be – what the doors are going to be, let alone what's behind door A, B, or C. But I will come into the game knowing the kinds of things I want to play with, and when they hit that room, I do know what's behind those different doors. And that's, that is something that's a little different because I, any prep I do, I'm going to use, but I'm going to use it. You know, when we hit the game, it's not that the decision didn't matter. I just have, you know, the different pieces that I'm going to pull in where I want to pull them in. So to me, the quantum ogre isn't a matter of it being a quantum ogre that the ogre was in two places at once. It's that you're in a place that has ogres and through one of these doors, you're going to run into an ogre. 
you know, it doesn't matter if that it was, you know, it's not that it's the ogres behind both doors. It's that you're in a world full of ogres and you're going to run into some ogres. And that's how I'm going to use that prep and use that ogre. Uh, but I'm still going to let the, the, the decisions are still going to matter because when you hit those doors, I'm going to know what's between them. They're going to be different options. I'm not going to do both these doors lead the same way. Yeah. And Thorin too, just as a, almost a final point for me with this in that some of this stuff, because again, it's not as much about the specific encounter, like the ogre, right? Like an ogre. I don't care. Like an ogre will be where he is and maybe he patrols and maybe you never see him. And that's kind of how I run my, my random encounter stuff too, or my random encounters. Right. But it's more about like the bigger stuff, because as the DM, as you've said many times, like you're a player at the table too. And what you get to play with is not your own PC that you get to develop and level up through all these times. It's the world and it's the stories and it's the, the plot points. So if I really want to play with this idea of this one, like wizard's tower, let's say, right. And there's something very specific about it that I want to play with. I'm going to have that in my world somewhere. And if you just didn't go to the town of boredom, that's fine. We don't have to go to boredom. And Plotfall is going to be very, very different. But that doesn't mean I'm just going to just throw everything away and start necessarily from scratch if I think that this is really something I want to play with. You know, right? And that's it more is your Yeah, it's, it's, the bigger, it's the bigger view of stuff, you know? Because those are the things that you get to play with. It, yeah, and on top of that, you can't you can't expect the DM to prep a thousand like like a thousand things when you're only going to see twenty of them. Like it's just not that is not a realistic expectation of how running a game works. You know, they might have a work someone else wrote that they're that 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 is more laid out. They might have their own thing that's more laid out. But sometimes the DM's going to have stuff they want to play with. They're going to move around because you just you can't study that much. You know, there's a limit to how much prep you can put into a game. Um, and sometimes that limit is I'm sitting down at the table to run this as it is. Here we go. <laughs> and it's out of you it's walk like, into a room. What do you want to do? <laughs> it's it's more like you know you need to prepare for three because that's all you're going to get in one session. Not even worried about trying to get to twenty. We can do a little experiment on this too. Uh, so, Dave, you really liked that the 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 haunted the um the vampires mansion, right? You liked kind of the crawling through rooms and seeing them revealed. Oh, yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Oh, especially because it was super different than what we've done in Woodstock Ponders up to yeah. that point, right? Yeah. So, now what did you like about that? Uh, well, I said a couple things. I think one, it was because it was so different because as we know in Woodstock, we've been just in the expanse of nameless Mm -hmm. forest with different types of things. Like we, you know, the temple and stuff like that. But it was just the, the wilderness survival type of thing. So this was much more, we're in town, we're playing with different factions and I got to see, uh, what it might've looked like me running Strahd on the other side as you're going through this kind of haunted, dark, vampire-infested mansion thing, you know? So one thing you mentioned you liked about it was we hit this at one area of the castle where the rooms were kind of run down and, like, the, these kind of, like, fledgling vampires popped out and started attacking you guys. Yeah. So it was, like, the surprise behind those rooms. Whereas other rooms had kind of been empty bedroom, empty bedroom, and then all of a sudden vampires. So does it hurt your enjoyment of that? If you know that going into that game, what I had was I had a map I'd put together, a map I'd found on the internet, the monsters I wanted to use, and I didn't know those vampires were there until you opened those doors. No, I I think that that's awesome. Uh, I think that that's your style of thing. I would not run it that way in the same way, (laughs) but we would both enjoy it as players for whatever reasons we weren't enjoying it, right? So, no, I had no 
no uh, worry that that because in essence that's kind of how it would work anyway for me. I I don't think it has to necessarily be in one room. You know. Be- because I've been steady DM for so long, and I did so much DMing, uh, you know, with very little prep time like, like earlier on, I have always said that many times I described the room for the first time for everybody, including myself. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely how I'm doing it, honestly. Yeah. Uh, in this case, we had the map. We had, so I had found a pretty good map that I had sat. So we had finished the session before in a library. And I basically sat that library inside this map awkwardly because the, the map on the mansion didn't quite fit the library. But I was like, <laughs> all right, just go with this. Yeah, whatever. Right, just go with it, guys. It, um, but like I, I came into it. I knew a few things. One, I knew I had given you guys some clue packets. So what I spent my prep time doing was I typed up the notes that were in the clue packets. Yeah. And I and I sat down and said, okay, this guy's going to be this vampire. Uh, his minions are mostly going to be, he's going to, he's been preying on the village. So I'm going to need some fledgling vampires. There's going to be some vampires in this encounter. And he has help from this other ally. So we're going to bring in the red caps again. So we're also going to pay off the red cap bit and let the party beat up on some red caps that are now way below them at CR2. We beat the piss out of those fucking things. And, and my, my prep was I put the map in, I put you guys on the map, I put the under the, the basement map in, um, and I just pulled out the tokens I needed and I made sure I had the monsters I needed handy. And then the rest of it was just okay, so where do these things appear in here as these guys are going around? Well, they're not gonna appear in the regular bedrooms, because the regular bedrooms belong to the master and his brides. The brides are all killed and the masters run they're trying to find the master. So the bedrooms are empty. We hit these back rooms that are kind of like they're they're kind of like dirty, dingy servants' quarters or something. And I'm like, ah, there. That's where he has the the the, the vampire peasants he's trying to sire. Hungry vampires attack. To add to that, because that's where you decided to put them, right? Like in game, you're like, okay, they're going here, right? At what whatever point is we're we're exploring. We also got to see that Tony's character Erasmus has no fucking problem rolling a fireball down a wooden hallway, right? And that made for a whole lot of fun within the game that you wouldn't have had if you were like, well, no, they have to be in, you know room yeah. xyz or whatever it was yeah. also just to tony you'll kind of back me up i think on this because you remember a lot of the 1e monster manual it's probably in the second edition too but you would have every monster had percent in layer right Correct. Yeah. in essence they yeah. were they were the quantum monster if you go into that cave maybe you'll find this maybe you won't and it was a roll of the dice but is that any different than the role of the dungeon master's brain yeah, right. no, you you had the uh, neurons firing. <laughs> you had how rare these creatures were, how many of them you'd find together, those kinds of things. Those are the old school details. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, I think we've I think we've beaten the quantum ogre to death, or maybe not. We can't tell. He's in, well, he's in no, Schrodinger's I, box. Again, Schrodinger's encounter. I still say that's our own trademark because it's different <laughs> than the quantum ogre. Go read the article and tell us what you think. I, Exactly. Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's encounter, Schrodinger's DM prep. I, Dave, and, I can't believe you didn't find that article, that Reddit thread from 2015. I mean, how did that slip by you with your research? <laughs> I didn't do my, I, I feel like I'm back in, in college. I got to do my literature review before I start my uh, research paper. The, the player base right now is massive. I think it's several million. So, um, yeah, you're not going to know what everyone's talking about. Not all, <laughs> not every massive conversation in one group is going to get out to the rest of the groups. But I do think it was interesting. You know, here was something where we had not stumbled across the main thread of the conversation before and well hey you know we were we aren't rehashing anything we are we are exploring this fresh for ourselves we've come to the same conclusion quantum ogre yeah <laughs> team quantum ogre 
Yeah. Quantum <laughs> Ogre will be the will be the mascot at, at Miskatonic University or, or at uh <laughs> at Yeah, they, they don't have a horse, they've got an ogre. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now, uh, having having gotten that out of the way, and I did want to kind of address that because, man, it's an interesting conversation. So let's talk about Shane's letter here and what we came here to talk about, which is um, downtime activities. Now, Shane is a listener. Shane, thank you very much for sending us this letter. He says he's been DMing his first campaign for the better part of four years on a weekly and biweekly basis. And that is great. That's a great run for your first campaign, man. It is. And I don't want to take it away from Shane because I really appreciate the question, but I just feel like he didn't start off with telling us how awesome we were. And I've been getting very used to that with the letters. So, <laughs> See, this is why we don't let Dave sort the questions. <laughs> uh, I'm just a, little, a little flattery will go a long way. No, um, <laughs> actually, he, he, he did. He did. He said he did. Uh, he, did. He, did. He, he, he did. Actually, I, I skipped it. He starts off with Hey DM's great podcast. There you oh, go. Oh, see? there yeah. our, our, our soul tithe is paid <laughs> um so he says there's a few things you'd like to take i'd uh, like to hear us take on and number one and what we're going to talk about a little more extensively today is his first question i'd like to hear how you deal with downtime activities how much downtime you provide your pcs and what do you what you do to make it rewarding uh xanthar's guide to everything has a useful chapter on this that our group draws inspiration from and i think we have some interesting stuff because we've been doing downtime activities and i know tony has for a very long time. At the same time, a lot of our current stuff doesn't have them. So I think we'll get into some of that. Mm-hmm. Now, Shane also sure. asked about, uh, he, he goes on to say, uh, some downtime situations from his game that he's found challenging are these. How much info does he give PCs who are researching major secrets of the campaign at a library? Uh, the origins of a sorcerer's powers or the whereabouts of the missing parents? Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes on, he has some other questions about tips for ending a long campaign, which we'll get to if we had, can tonight. If we can't, we will uh, get to that later. I do think he does ask uh, how you handle random encounters and high level campaigns, which almost coincides with our quantum ogre discussion a minute ago. Mm-hmm. We'll see if we can get to that. Let's start with downtime first. So guys, how do you handle downtime? I think in previous editions, it played a much more serious role. Uh, because in 1 and 2E, especially, you had to train your proficiencies and what have you now. And uh, now I would say it's more of an opportunity as a DM if you want to let your players find out information about the story, discover things, work on things. But, I mean, really, uh, these days I'm kind of handling that in the email. But the trick is you don't want these guys going off into a solo module while everybody's asleep, you know, for a weekend in the town. Making horseshoes. And you know, I would say, and it's not that there aren't rules for creating magic items in 5e, there are, but I feel like they were more in depth in second edition at least. Like, I feel like that had, like, that had, like, spell creation and magic item creation felt like they were really, a really big part of the core books where they kind of feel like they're tacked on to 5e. And I don't feel like it's necessarily encouraged so much. Yeah, very much so. So you're not, I mean, is that, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is it even really clear? At what point you can make your own spell? I don't think there's uh, a really. It's. I think Thorne is right in the sense that that it's still there, but it is not. It has become not a mechanic of the game. It's become a part of the storytelling of the game, um, where you absolutely can like as your wizard is leveling up, he's creating these spells and she's creating these spells or learning them, and that's all kind of downtime. But it's more are you role playing it that way? In the same way, do you role play having to have um all of the um i'll make a point with that uh in the current campaign of critical role the one wizard 
uh, Caleb, does a lot of that with role play in that he's always talking about the materials that he's utilizing with these spells. He's always, you know, going to purchase and find these materials. He's always talking about how he's researching this new spell that he's looking at when fifth level spells open, right? And he's going to take this, this, and this. So it's much more a role play storytelling thing than necessarily the mechanic that it used to be in old editions and in that it still, I think, is in Pathfinder, at least in the first edition of Pathfinder. Had much more of a mechanic of making that stuff. Well, without getting lost in that rabbit hole, because that is actually for me a very interesting topic. Uh, as far as I, I let your character Dave in uh, Storm Kings do research in the library, and my short yeah. answer to that is, this is a simple, low-hanging fruit for you to feed the player whatever info you want them, them to have. Period. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting with that point, though, Tom, because he specifically talks about how much. Uh, information do you give them when they're researching in a library, right? Mm. I think it tells very much where we are in our current modern day because people haven't gone to a fucking library and tried to find information <laughs> in 20 years, right? <laughs> we all have, right? So we're yeah. all old enough that we had to take that Saturday in school and go to the fucking library to try to find something that I could literally Google in three seconds right now. So good luck in some old medieval library finding the right tome that had the correct information. and not Even Gandalf did it in Lord of the Rings. Right, yeah, exactly. He's sitting there with the candle and some dusty old scrolls, right? And there or ain't like no Dewey Decimal System. Right, in the, in the uh, Game of Thrones when Sam is having to go and try to find stuff in the stacks. Like, yeah, good luck, man. No, There's no Dewey Decimal System in most fantasy worlds. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know who actually does that quite well is uh, Patrick Rothfuss in the Kingkiller Chronicles. He talks about the archives. The way he builds that out is a great way to show how difficult it would be to find stuff in that type of world, in a, quote, library, right? Well, I, I do think, you know, if you're talking period libraries, I have not read, uh, I've only read the beginning of the King Killer, King Killer Chronicles. I mean, like, the beginning, beginning. I didn't, it, it, it did not hook me. I need to come back to it when I'm in a, more of a, a Rothfuss mood, I think. Very good, very good. But the, there would be a librarian. In, in, in a library like that, you got to think in terms of co book collections. It would be more yeah. like a book collection. Yeah. And there would be a librarian who has a way they keep things on their shelves. And you're probably going to go talk to the librarian and find out where something is. And they're going to have their own catalog system. And they might not remember everything. You know, and then you're need to, work to, to stay with this idea with uh, with Rothfuss, one of the ways in which he totally, what like what I said, like one of the builds um uh, that he did with this is the librarians yeah but they're still like they're not immortal so the new librarian <laughs> that comes in right like the new manager wants to try all the shit that didn't work but they want to try it now right they're going to retcon all this stuff so <laughs> like some of the areas of the library or the archives continually shift because they're reordering it in the dewey decimal system that they like Right, yeah. you know, and it's just anyway. But that's librarian, the RPG. Here we well, go. I, I, right. <laughs> if That'd I was doing, our, uh, if I was doing it in a very medieval way, I would, I would probably have the librarian with one or two apprentices. 
who are being raised strictly to do it the librarian's way. The way the, that way, yeah. And, and then they're going to take over and do it that way. But that's just, you know, that's just how I would, like, I think that's how it works in medieval Europe, is what it kind of comes down to. You know, like, that's my understanding of the world's, and, like, kind of the history I'm aware of. That's probably what I would pull from. It would almost be like, you know, it's probably, I mean, if you're talking really medieval Europe, it's almost certainly attached to a monastery or yeah. perhaps, or 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 a castle or, or, or a palace of some kind. Someone has basically caused this to be created. Or Wizards um, Academy or something, depending on yeah. your world, you know. And yeah. then you're still going to have, I mean, you're still going to have some some really anal retentive wizard who has it just the way he wants it. Oh, yeah, right, and, yeah, yeah. Oh, here we go with the wizard hate. Here it yeah, is. Yeah, any, uh, you know, any apprentice who misshells something is absolutely getting switched until they can't sit down. That can't ever go away, Tony. That can't ever go away. The wizard has to come kind of be the bookish academic nerd guy it kind of it begs it i don't think it'll ever go away because if you're not that you have to be a sorcerer or something right like you need to be studying all the time well in 5e in second edition it was different in 5e i think yeah they have literally they have now codified wizards are quote magic nerds <laughs> So, like, but when I do this, and I've done this a few times, like I said, I just had the party found, find, like, a pack of letters I had to read. I actually like to pull in some tricks from Call of Cthulhu, specifically in more investigative games, when I do have players using library resources. Because you want to think about, I personally, to kind of to kind of up the immersion, I want to think about what kind of uh, record is this kept in. So depending on what they're looking for, you're going to want to fill in, like, how is it? So if you're looking for just, like, okay, what are the legends about the big bad, they're going to be collected in some kind of book of tales or legends or maybe someone wrote a history of the previous exploits, which you have some things like that of, like, you know, like Lord of the Rings would have, like, you know, there are people remember what Sauron did in the Second Age, and that stuff's going to be in a book somewhere is the way I would do it. So they're going to come up, we're going to, they're going to come across a tome that tells the story as it is remembered if they're looking for things like who are my parents i'm probably going to have them i'm going to give them some clues about where to look like so for instance okay if you don't if they don't know who their parents were maybe they can figure out where the orphanage was and if they remember where the orphanage was well maybe they can figure out there might be some record of some foundlings or something oftentimes if you kind of get back to the medieval thing your records are kept by the church so it might be that they're that you know they might be looking at local church records or maybe the local uh, the local keep kept the record of citizens where it's literally so and so married so and so and you know had had sired these children and it would just be handwritten you have things very much like this like my wife has done some genealogy research in Ireland before and I was in there and saw her looking through these old parish records yeah. and that's how these records were kept the, the the marriages and the births and deaths were all in the church book so you could I would if it was something genealogy related like that or maybe who owned stuff I would probably pull in that kind of records or you have there are certain English records I think it's the book of days which is that kind of thing like it's just kind of records of you know it, it's 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 the record keeping of the kingdom during that time so you can kind of look into that kind of thing it's also very dependent i think on where they are what they're looking for all of that so uh you guys in curse of strahd in the very beginning chris's character uh sir scar the paladin who is definitely not an academic um <laughs> and that that played into it a little bit but when you guys had gotten to barovia village of barovia the first time and went to the burgomaster's mansion he asked if there was a library and I said, yeah, they would collect some books and stuff. And he wanted to look up. So that was a way that I could start to throw some things about the Kolianas, about the idea that Irina had been adopted, an idea about how how the how the land is set up, how maybe some of the, the original 
uh, they're not a monarchy, but that type of thing, that, that yeah. governance system is set up. I was able to throw out some stuff about, I think, vampire lore, including stuff that was not correct, you know, specifically because that's the nature of information is it's going to have stuff that is not necessarily correct. And that's a great way to throw out things that they'll start to play with and then realize the world doesn't just give them what they well, I looked in the book, so I should know all the things. Well, go look at a book and let me know how that works. You know? Well, uh, well, two things with that. One, if we're talking about vampire lore, it may be correct. Maybe that's not what the vampire you're dealing with. For example, uh, vampires in many cases can't enter a home unless they're invited. That's kind of true. Unless, of course, you're done with Strahd. He'll go wherever the hell he wants because Ravenloft is his house, literally and figuratively. Um but with that also said, with the sorcerer's lineage, uh, Thorne, you're looking at this very, I think, very clinically. I would throw out, like, you know, your character has a tattoo. I'm researching this symbol versus mm-hmm. trying to, like, you know, because your alien, your your, da- your dad wasn't an alien. Your mom was maybe a dragon. Like, you know, <laughs> I think something well, like I, I, let me Let me round that thought off because the point isn't what specifically they're looking for. I think the point is think about what kind of record you want to have it in and what that record might look like, because that really makes the library research a little more interesting. So if it's like, if it is a tattoo, well, think about, okay, how are they going to find the information about that tattoo? What kind of book is that going to be in if they're in a library? What kind of book are birth and deck records going to be in? What kind of book are you going to find these legends in? You know, like what, how does that look in the library? So you can explain to the character what they find and what they're kind of, and then, and then kind of tell them what they find in that record. You know, you also find often um, records like collections of letters, are very common, uh, or like, or, or, or autobiographies or biographies or scientific research of like someone like an alchemist kind of, you know, Isaac Newton type things. But like, think about, to me, I just think it's interesting if I want to, if they're looking for this information and they're finding it in a setting, I like to kind of give them, okay, well, here's what you find from that setting, not just here's the information. So Dave, you brought up something interesting as far as, you know, do you give them false information? Now, I, th- I I totally get what you just said, and I, I think it is cool. It's kind of neat. Yeah, you can't just learn it from a book. On the other hand, to take uh-huh. that point, though, does it does it make the player feel like they wasted their time looking if what they find isn't true? Oh uh, well, that's uh, yeah. So it's a it's a it's a little of both. So I've done this a couple times. I actually started it uh, not in terms of uh, researching in libraries and stuff, but in the Slavers Bay campaign as you were going along the road to Thrace. I had you meet people traveling out of Thrace or, or other townsfolk or people yeah. at the fork or whatever who might have some information about Thrace. Some of the rumors that were happening of what was going on, some of them were true, some of them were false because that's how rumors are going to work, right? Mm. So uh, for me, again, this is from this side of the screen, could that turn bad? Yeah, but I'm not necessarily giving them something where they're going to actively, you know, explode if they do this kind of thing. <laughs> Aside from maybe the idea that you get when you first enter the Kolyanovich uh, mansion and it's strung with garlic and you only learned later that garlic doesn't do a damn thing to vampires. <laughs> like it doesn't seem to bother them at all. 
But the general populace seemed to feel that that was the case, you know. So it didn't, you know, it didn't make you just save or suck kind of thing. But I have done it too where... um, That worked out too from a player point of view. Like we did all get garlic. We all ran into straw not long after. We all saw the garlic was not effective. Yeah, and then he was just like, cool, you guys having a pizza? Like he's just an Italian, (laughs) right? Like so he puts people like, he just likes garlic on everything that he has. So, you know, he wants to season his... He did literally uh, suck the sauce out of one of the player characters. Yeah, he just... you know, he gets to season his meals appropriately. Uh, he's an Italian vampire. You know? As long as he has no sardines in my pizza, because that's unfortunate. Um, but I've done it... Um, I'm actually going to be doing it in the session tonight, possibly, um, where I'll run certain things like a skill challenge if a player is investigating certain things. And depending on success and failure, you will get certain levels of information about this. Obviously, the more successes you have, the more information that is possibly useful or that will give you clues is going to be. But you'll always get some level of because if you're in a library all day, you're going to find some information. It might not be exactly what you were looking for, but it might point towards that. You know, I'm not just going to completely screw somebody, though, and give them all false information or you don't find anything whatsoever. You spent all day doing nothing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one mod I read back in the day, which I did something that was, was super cool, was you gave you, if your players were milling around town, some of the rumors they can come across, and it lists, this rumor is true, this rumor is false, and it yep. went right down the list. Yeah, um, Tui had some of that. I think I think the City of Greyhawk had some of that stuff. Yeah, and that, that was kind of how it works, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, think, I think it only gets dangerous when you're you put too much information on the table. Because we talked about being repeating and being super clear so your players are able to follow your storyline. So as long as they're doing that, you want to throw in a false clue or a, you know, a false rumor, then, you know, that's that's okay. As long as everyone remembers what they're doing. I think it's maybe a time investment thing. And it's kind of what you're coming, it comes down to, right? If it's, yeah. if you didn't spend too much time learning that false rumor and you don't spend too much time or lose too much learning it was false, then it just adds flavor to the game world. If you do spend a lot of time and you are heavily penalized because it was incorrect, well, now it kind of eats away at your trust of the DM because <laughs> the yeah. DM's wasting your time with false. It's, with, how, with, it's how you play it, right? It's how you play it. If it's like Tony did with Roderick where we uh, ended in Nightstone and we were in the keep because we got we kind of saved them when we were in the keep and I wanted to start researching some stuff, said sure. And you, we handled it via email between games. That's no big deal because then as the DM, you have that that opportunity to think about what you want to give them. Uh, It can be a little harder in-game. And that's why I think something like the secrets and clues idea is great because that can give you – and you can couch it in any way you want. Like Thorne, you were saying, you can have it be through birth records or through tales or through whatever it might be, lore. You know, little little bits of lore stuff that might help them. Well, and I just, yeah, and that's just, I think my, my big takeaway there is from, and from other investigative games, it helps to crouch it within something that feels like where they would find it. Then just say, here's what you'll learn. Absolutely. It, help, it helps to just, you don't need to like, you don't need to type it out. I typed out some letters. You don't need to type out some letters. And I should also say, when I typed out those letters, the players read the letters and I then had to re-go over what I was hoping they would take away from the letters. <laughs> The uh, I will say because we had played the uh, the Call of Cthulhu game uh, prior to that session, and I was like, "Ooh, this is just like Call of Cthulhu." It felt very much like that, like little bit of a clue you get, and that's fun. Those things sure. are fun. 
Yeah, and I think it is. I think it's a nice thing to add to any game sometimes. You know, it's not, I don't want, and not every D&D game is going to be a, a deep investigation, but it's nice to add a clue here or there or something they found that they can, especially something that they can actually look over and analyze and think about as, you know, kind of because they have it physically or, it's, or they have a separate text to read. And, you know, I mean, you get, you can get, you can get cool with it too. You can put codes in it. You can put a secret message down the first, uh, the first column of letters. You can do neat <laughs> stuff. <laughs> when you get into kind of this desktop publishing type stuff, I didn't do any of that. I just, I just wrote up, I just wrote up a couple of letters, but what about, you know, okay. So this, that's how you can spend your time researching, but that is not like that is, that is not the only downtime you can spend. I mean, oh. Tony, your games had traditionally have often had Smiths who made player character Smiths who made powerful magic items. One of my more memorable characters actually was a wizard who was a, it was a blade singer who was able to create his own spell. And he made it basically a higher level upgraded version of magic missile. That was turned out to be really cool to him in the game. Um, I mean, how do you handle that? I don't think any of us are doing it in the five E campaigns. I feel like I don't want to mess with that mechanic to that level, to be perfectly honest. Like you can add flavor to the world. Uh, I'm very strong on making custom magic items. Um, it's not the players make, but that you make, right? Yeah, but I mean, well, they can make them too. Um, it's not off the table, but it's not be like I'm a blacksmith and I'm going to go forge Excalibur. That's not the case. So now if you're a high level spellcaster and you're working with someone with really excessive uh, blacksmithing skills, you have the appropriate uh, materials, you're going to invest the time in this. Honestly, if, you th- if I think about it, honestly, most magic items in all my campaigns, I would say 95% of them have been found though. Like if someone wants to like work on their plate mail or make a really nice weapon, that's one thing. If you look at the charts for that. Making a sword, you don't make a sword in a weekend. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Or a suit of full plate. Forget that. But but having having kind of hung out with and played with and being friends with a lot of the players in that play group, a lot of the stories that still get told are of the weapons player characters made. Like they remember, I, th- I forget if it was your character Theoden who was the smith or it was Tom's character, but they remember the cool stuff they made and how it was so awesome and they used it to slay the gods, you know? Yes, but that's not in town stuff. That was his dwarven prodigy. Uh, worked with another elven archmage, and they had excessive resources and made an incredible weapon. That's how that played out. That was an in-game thing. That wasn't like, okay, we just rolled those you know, nasty quantum ogres. What are we going to do until uh, you want to get a reward? It will be here till Monday, and then we'll head out of town. That's. I do think of that as, da- to be honest, I still think of that as downtime activity. Like, you know, your research, I think of as downtime. I know, I know research is covered as downtime activities, like in the books. So I would still consider that like, I mean, you don't really train in 5e. There's not a, really a mechanic specifically for that. Like, I mean, previously, like 2e was really stringent. Like, you know, like Dave said, you know, you don't learn how to use a sword, you know, in four days. That's really <laughs> not how it works at all. Um, not if you're going to attain real proficiency with it. And even if you did, if you're like, if Erasmus is like, my wizard is like, hey, can someone teach me how to use a sword? They're like, sure, great. You spend however long time to do that with the Lord, I use a sword. And then it's like, well, who cares? And I have multiple attacks. Like, that's not helpful. <laughs> right. And that's kind of, I'm playing with that a little bit in the Woodstock game, Tony, and with, um, with Beam, you know, because we got to town, we went to the, the Paladin Order and I started kind of play around with some ideas as to where my character was after all of this stuff. And I have this long sword from them and have begun starting to learn that 
And then, you know, F, whenever we're sitting around and we're like, okay, we're going to bed, I'm going to probably be like, you know, in the mornings training a little bit more on that type of thing and then see where it goes, you know, because there's, there's ways in which you can reward that stuff as a DM. But I think part of this comes with downtime specifically because of the types of adventures we are currently running. So Storm Kings, Curse of Strahd are two perfect examples. Even Woodstock, though, it's much more this long-form adventure. And it goes back to the episode we talked about whatever happened to the small event, like the three to six session adventure, where you went and you took care of the keep, right, on the borderlands, let's say, right? <laughs> and now your adventurers head back to town, they're doing their stuff. What are they doing now until something else comes along? Good luck doing that in Barovia, because last time I checked, Ravenloft is still up on the on the mountain looking down upon you, right? And you're right. ringed in. Storm King's Thunder, good luck, because the giant clans are about to annihilate everyone. So if you want to go and just hang out for for a couple months and redecorate your house. And yeah, learn how to use that longsword. Right, but you can't. So in the old style, more, you know, the, the older style of gaming where you would go on this adventure and then you'd have time to yourself. That's when downtime can really be explored. But if you're running a long-form thing, that's going to be tough. You're going to be waiting nine or ten levels before you can do anything, right? That is the the tricky part. In Woodstock Wanderers, I have not given you guys a lot of downtime. I guess I'm thinking about what is downtime. Because there's kind of two definitions. Maybe it's not two definitions, but there's kind of two categories of downtime. There's the, you're in town for a day, what do you do? You go to a bar, you go you go buy some weapons, you go to the store, you go do yeah. some praying, do some research. Yeah, I've given yeah. you a little bit of that, and the way I handled that was I just had you tell me what to do, and then I went around the table and told you what happened, and we role-played yeah. a little bit and moved on. Absolutely. And I think that and everyone, you know, people were able to get the weapons they were looking for. They were able to, you know, uh, the, the wizard was able to find a bunch of spells, you know, things. So so players were able to kind of advance themselves in a way, whatever way they want it. And it is a second to give the party a chance. Okay, go split up and do what you want to do. Tell me what you want to get and get your stuff. And then we'll come back together for the next stage. That is kind of like your most basic, most common downtime. And I do think that still happens in these. It Absolutely. definitely still happens in Woodstock Wanderers. There, were, there have been plenty of times where like when we first hit Wallachia. We're like, okay, so you're going, we're going to Blinkskis, you're going to the, to the weaponsmith. Then, you know, Phineas is just kind of going to get drunk and, 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 and try to start a party somewhere, you know, that counts as downtime. I do think that is downtime. And I do think you, cause you'd make some of these strides there. you do, you might let them do some research and find some stuff, you know, you let them kind of silver up some weapons, you let them get some stuff. Then there's the wider downtime, which is okay. You're buying a house, you're raising an army, you're doing spell research, you're doing magic item research. And you're right. In the current kind of philosophy of adventuring, which is, okay, I'm telling you a TV-style story or a movie-style story that you're going to – that's going to keep pulling you along, you don't get months to sit down. On the other hand, as Tony's pointed out many times, you might pick up a level going over to the hot dog stand and picking out your condiments. (laughs) Everyone got their ice cream? Okay. (laughs) Uh, You know what what made me think of of what I thought of when I first read this question, though, was uh, an easy way, like if your campaign is calling for it, if you can like work it in, uh, because it just happened in the Marvel game. Give your players a base of operations. Like, we just got that headquarters on Mars thing for our, our team in Marvel. <laughs> like, I was super excited when Chris dropped this map out. And then he was like, oh, yeah, and then, you know, uh, Caliente is going to give us this, you know, to be able to utilize as a base. And I'm like, 
oh wow like and i never got to play with it in my one in the pathfinder campaign even though they had cleared out this one keep and i had told them in the in the dungeon they found and some of the treasure was the deed so in essence i i had given them this yes. to have and then like well, you know, equipping it and fortifying it and hiring all the people, you know, that kind of stuff can be, I think, depending on your group, can be super fun, you know? So are we going to hire the Wonder Twins? <laughs> Mop and Bucket. No. Yeah, that, that was That's <laughs> that a form yeah. of Sorry. water. <laughs> no, he's a form water. of water, and she can be the form of, uh, what is that kind of dog that basically is a big walking mop? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh crap! I forget the name of it. Oh, yeah, it's literally a mop. <laughs> do either one of you plan to put any extended downtime in your games for Five E to let players do stuff like make magic items, make their own spells, you know, build their own armies or anything like that? Do you plan to do any of that? I mean, we're all kind of all our games are right around ninth, tenth level, and yeah. none of us have so far. Yeah. Uh, my short answer is. The way I'm considering restructuring Store Kings is when we finish the main arc, I'm thinking about giving you a time break. Like, I don't want to literally spoil it, but I was considering saying, like, you're going to finish a plot point, let's just say, and then maybe you'll reconvene X amount of months later when something else happens. And at that point, yeah, you guys have the opportunity to go out and live your lives outside of adventuring. And then it's back on the slalom. It's <laughs> yeah, then you're back on the train. The um, yeah, I would say almost exactly the same, Tony. In that, uh, like I was just saying, like the idea of downtime, other than like the overarching downtime. Like obviously in Barovia, you guys have like okay, you're you're betting down for the night. What are you doing? Or you're you're bopping around the town of Valaki, something like that, right? But for the most part, it's been like okay, a little bit of a time crunch, similar to Storm Kings. Which has its advantages and disadvantages. But my concept, if we continue with these characters at the, in essence, whatever the end of Strahd will be of that of that adventure uh, in Barovia, I have an idea that will open up vast amounts of the world that the players at that point, now that you have this this hardened team and like you've all worked together. Well, now what happens when you now throw them out in the world, you know, and they can start to say, well, no, I want to do this and in essence, create their own adventures instead of being drawn into one in the mists, let's say. Uh, Slaver's Bay was very similar too. I had that first adventure arc, you know, where you're the Umbra team for the Domina, but then your plan is you kind of want to get out of this slave thing that you're, you've been pulled into. At that point, that world would then open up and there's varying things that are occurring that allow the players to decide. And it's not this, you better decide quick because the world's about the end. Oh, you better decide quick. Tiamat's about to kill everyone. Oh, Vecna's coming back. Oh, right. Like these world ending things where like, I can't go and like, you know, research my spell because there's no world to research it on, right? Because it's just <laughs> Right? Or like Woodstock, right? Like, yeah, we can all go do our downtime, but meanwhile, this thing is going to crack the world like an egg. So, yeah, go do your, you know, let's go, let's go shopping for drapes. It <laughs> is, it is very, it is very antagonist-driven storytelling. You know, if you think about it, because yeah. it's basically the antagonists are making the beats, and the players are just responding to them. But on the other hand, you could do this differently, and I'm not like. 
it's kind of funny because I, 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 we're all kind of running a similar kind of game. They're all very driven and it's all very episodic now. It didn't necessarily start out so episodic. I think we have some early episodes talking about how don't make it like a TV show, but it kind of is now, right? You know, it's like, okay, so now you have the end of this, of, of this adventure, but you're going to get sucked into the next thing. Another way to do this could be to you know, just have the players give you their goals and then, you know, let them use their downtime and their time to go achieve those goals. Like, okay, you want to make a, ma a mighty magic item. Well, maybe you've got to go find this ancient gem with us with a dragon soul uh, trapped in it to put it in or something. Absolutely. You could let them drive it around the things they want to achieve that are kind of coming out of downtime or things that, yeah. you know, you let the downtime, let them come up with their adventure and go follow. That's another way to do things. Absolutely. I would love to play with that. It's it, it very much depends on what is the type of campaign that you're that you're running. And it's going to change whether you yeah. can how much you can do that. It, it, Tony, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you didn't want to get into the to the item mechanics now. And I was curious, like, like why is that? Why, why did you do it then and not want to get into it in 5e? Or just now in general. Without spoiling anything, the uh, mechanics in, for item creation, in my opinion, have always been loose as all hell, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. And, you know, like, for example, when, I mean, and I'm sorry, I've been through second edition forwards, backwards, sideways. Go ahead and find me some concrete rules on when you can make a belt of storm giant strength. I would love to hear this because you're not going to find it. it that does the, not um, exist. I think 5e does have concrete rules. It's just I don't think they're too – they're not necessarily beneficial over finding it, if I understand correctly. Yeah, 4e did. It broke everything down and said, okay, a storm giant belt would cost this, and you need this much residium. So yeah. if you have X amount of gold, you can make it. Ta-da! There's the, there's zero mystery and magic in that. <laughs> I mean, it's, I might as well literally be walking to a vending machine with my giant bag of money, stuffing it in there, and then a belt comes out. Well, that was what all of us didn't like about 4th edition. Well, most of us. We had some players who preferred this, but a lot of us felt like 4th edition turned things into just slots. All right, you've got an epic level magic item, but now the players get to make that whatever magic item they want. What the DM gives them or lets them do doesn't matter. Oh, and then you can't add custom stuff because everything's based on their choices. Yeah. Well, you know, we that's you know, yeah. we, we've been over 40. Yeah, that's uh the, the if if it's if it becomes too easy because in essence I can just grind out enough gold or whatever and then I can just go purchase this. The the whole thing that kind of pushed D&D forward in the very beginning even was that you you go out adventuring because you want to find the stuff that you can't get, right? Because there was like a lot of the worlds that you have it was this idea that there was an age before where all of this stuff was created. It was like this this amazingly, you know, advanced uh, magical time and something happened. And now you're finding, in essence, the relics of that stuff. And that's why you're delving down into these fucking dungeons and underwater caverns and stuff, right? Because I can't just go down to the apothecaryist and find, you know, a potion of, of giant strength, you know, because they, we lost the the knowledge, you know, I'll, I'll be straight with you. No one would ever sell a belt of storm giant strength ever. They put it on and go rob the bank for whatever money they needed. Yeah. No, somebody and in their party. Like, if it's a commerce, how do you regulate that? Because now you, in essence, just have like, go buy a superpower that can't be stopped. <laughs> right. Like There right. is something to be said for a world that really delves into those. Yeah. Right. 
one of the core concepts D&D is based on is that even if you can buy these things, 99.9% of the population can't, which is kind of tied to like a medieval economy kind of approach that there's some fantastic, there's like this level of wealth that adventurers have access to because they're doing extra planner things and going places other people can't go. That basically opens up different, a different level of thing to them and just a few people at the top. We are the 0.1% effectively. And with my sky ball, for example, I would let you buy a belt of strength, maybe a belt of stone giant strength. I wouldn't let you buy the the storm giant belt. You got to go find that. You got to go earn it. Or God forbid you have to make it. I don't know how many storm giants you're going to squeeze up into a juicer to make that belt. <laughs> well, we're going to we've we've killed enough of them. Maybe we can try or we have or we haven't yet. That's coming. No, that's that's next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention, you can't even reach Elios's without an airship. Or some kind of flying power, which I think we're the only airship we've seen so far. His customer base is very selective. <laughs> so, you know, one of the other things that strikes me about this kind of downtime type activity is we don't we don't generally have characters demanding the ability to make spells and items. Thank we do God. have players who sometimes do want to go out and like kind of do some research, find some extra stuff, maybe spend some time in a tavern. And we and we tend to adjudicate that on just a case by case. You know, what do you want to do? And I tell you what happens. I tend not to make it too negative. I know if you look through the Xanthar, the Sky to Everything, they have rules on downtime that includes things like rivals. And like one of the rivals is like, there's a tax man who keeps hounding the party because he feels like they're dodging fees. And I'm like, that sounds funny. But God, I don't think my players would enjoy that it, at it, all. It very much depends. Like we always say, know your table. And it so much depends on that because so many of these things sound really, really fun. Like, I even love the idea that some people have brought out of that, like, to get to the next level, it's not even that you have to long rest. You have to go out and, like, if you're gaining, you know, the ability to, whatever, uh, some new new uh, third, third uh, level ability, like, that comes through training at your monastery. That comes through revisiting your mentor, whatever. That sounds cool, but players want to play D&D. So depending, um, if they're playing once a month and they had to spend that session going to talk to their fucking mentor just to get the third level thing that they got, right? Yeah. It, it depends, right? It, it can go either way. It's one of those things that was fun, but was too much for pain. And it, it, it's a fun concept, but in practice, it was too much for pain in the ass and no one enjoyed it. Well, I'm just no one, but that's what I got rid of it. I think if you're playing like every week, then you could do that. Then that's fine. Mm -hmm. You're playing once a month. F that. Just F that idea. Right. I mean, you're talking about downtime. I, I, I'm just going to try to complete reading my book of strength from the Christmas game in <laughs> game the, session tonight. By the time it, uh, the, the adventure is done. Hulk's going like, to stop outside of this temple and be like, guys, we are going nowhere until I'm done my, well, again, so my that, burpees. But that's a good point, right? Because of what we're talking about here. So this idea of, of the overarching downtime, something like the, the manual of bodily health, right? Or gainful exercise mm -hmm. uh, that you have to read over a period of a week, in essence, game time week. But because you guys are in Barovia, you're in the Curse of Strahd, you're playing this adventure with these characters that you built for this adventure, right? You kind of want the goody to play in this adventure, even though it's not like at 11th level, 
those characters cease to exist in the universe. Like I was just saying, there's ways in which the world opens up then if we decide to move forward. But it's that it's that balance between immediate gratification of it for this adventure that we're all playing and we're trying to get to think and the gratification of character development over time. And that's hard sometimes as much as we say, Ooh, that'd be a cool idea when you're playing it. Sometimes it's not as cool an idea, you know, cause everyone else picked up their stuff from the Christmas game and started shooting shit out. And Tony's <laughs> over here fucking highlighting shit. Like he's doing his, uh, finals in college. Hey right? brother, it's never got a thesaurus. Yeah. And he's a fucking barbarian having to do this, which is even worse. Right. But, uh, it's true. And it's, you know, there, there are definitely some things where you're like, man, that'd be so cool. And then you roll it out to the party and you're like, wow, this is so, this it's cool in concept. It'd be cool in a book. It's cool detail, but it's not fun to play at the table. Yeah. And that's one of the things you got to balance with all these kinds of things, with all this backstory stuff and this, this downtime stuff. I will say there's one thing I like about that Marvel face rip system we're playing. The one that Chris is, D, obviously the one Chris is DMing. Yeah. I do like that you kind of, you level up your powers by developing quote, new power stunts, which you need to do in the game while playing, trying to do, use that power to do that stunt. Like if you want to take your flame ability and be able to make walls of flame, you gotta, you need to make several attempts to successfully generate walls of flame. And there's a mechanic yeah. for it before you learn it. And I think that's kind of neat. Just also like in kind the of comics, a right? Yes. Just like when the Human Torch wanted to learn how to go supernova, he had to learn how to do that. He didn't just go, yeah. just do it, just because he got hit by cosmic rays, right? Yeah. So that does round out the things I wanted to talk about here. I do think, you know, it's kind of fun to kind of let the party go to a bar and maybe get in a bar fight. Be careful, again, <laughs> how big of a... I, I just think it's a balancing act, because it's fun, but then, okay, so, okay, they get arrested. Or they get killed in town. Like, you can only go... You can have fun... But by nature, your downtime stuff's probably not so consequential. Because if it is, it probably sucks for the players. And if it's not, it's just a waste of You kind of well, it's you just quick and light and fun and move on to the stuff that they're actually trying to do. You fought against the most epic vampire lord in the world and defeated his armies. But in the bar fight was when you lost your life, right? Like how the bouncer threw you out a window but, and you died. Yeah, how <laughs> anticlimactic is that, right? And this does dovetail with uh, with some of Shane's other questions here. So one is he had asked, and I guess, yeah, Tony, you wanted to get into this, right? You want to take us yeah. off here with the um, kind of how to wrap up a high-level kind of a, a campaign at the end? Yeah, my short answer here is don't get hung up on what physical rewards you're going to give them because you know what? You're at the end of the story arc. You know, maybe you're going to play these characters again. Maybe they're not. The most important thing I would focus on is make sure that the players are exiting your campaign thinking and feeling that the decisions they made had consequence. Um, what game was that that uh, we played on? It was the it was the 360. It was um, uh, what am I thinking of? Uh, Dragon Age. They yes. recapped all the poignant decisions you made throughout the entirety of that campaign that you played. You and know, they like mattered the, for the next game. And the next game, you actually had three games where the, your decisions theoretically compounded to matter throughout them. Ooh. Which was, which was neat. And I think that is a really good example of how to wrap something up. Everything comes to an head. It's revo resolved. And some of your others, these people, like, you know, that, oh, those other clans that you got together, 
this is what they did, and then this border is safe over here, and this village has a holiday for you for saving them once a year. <laughs> Those things. That's what you want to hear as your party's doing their victory lap at the end of that final session. Well, with you guys, I want to throw a question out here because I don't have a lot to say necessarily on this subject, as I was saying earlier, because I haven't actually wrapped up like real high level campaigns. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the stuff has been lower level stuff. Uh, the campaign petered out, that type of thing, like what mostly happens, right? Mm -hmm. Is there a huge difference in terms of when we're talking about 5e because there's that, in essence, hard 20 cap? Um, because they haven't decided to go to epic tiers past that. But back in the day when you could have a level 40 thief, in essence, I mean, there's it, you were only stopped by how far you wanted to take it. That's kind of different, because if I wrap up a high-level campaign, like, I'm kind of done, unless I get called out to save the world one more time or something, right, with the same exact character. So does that change it, too? That's my system. I wrapped up a high-level campaign not super long ago Thorn was in, and they literally, at the end of that, it ran for about two years. Uh, they were about level 20, and they had saved the entire world. Like, there it was. And basically, they were given options. Uh, their patron gods and goddesses got all together. They met him in the center of the universe, um, and uh, which was Nirvana in, in that system. And... Um, they were given opportunities to be absorbed as uh, basically acolytes into their pantheon to start training to become essentially immortals. I got you. Or, or they would return to Earth and be legendary heroes and live out the rest of their lives and be that person with that Marvel face rep popularity of 100. So that Japanese girl uh, who's living yeah. in Tokyo knows who you are if you came on TV. Now they have to. Yeah, you're now Captain America, right? Everybody, yeah. you, are a, you are literally a household name. Or I gave him even a third opportunity to do something else where you would continue adventuring, but you would give up your earthly shells and become something else entirely uh, and almost be reincarnated into something very next level. That's awesome. That's like the Star Trek The Next Generation episode that I just saw the rerun of yesterday with the Traveler and Wesley Crusher. Sort of, yeah. Vaguely yeah, remember that's awesome. that. That's be, awesome. Be, being the nice, copacetic, easy-to-handle player character, player that I am, uh, I, I chose, my character chose none of those. Uh, he, he he didn't like the idea. <laughs> this is like this is the campaign with the with the chaotic good uh, basically pyromaniac uh, wild mage. Oh, you just wanted to see the magic go free. So the idea of joining a lawful good pantheon after they had perverted his wish by turning him into a book uh, was not appealing to him. <laughs> although he did love the goddess of magic, so he he said, "No, I'm going to keep going and I'm just going to find my own way and do my own study." And I'm going to and now he is a deity in the world of the Woodstock Wanderers are in. <laughs> In fact, he actually granted Erasmus's wish. So he he went trans campaign. That's interesting. <laughs> okay. Uh, hey, why not? Why not? Did Bill Hazard show up as a god in one of your campaigns, Tony? Yeah, but you were DMing him. He was. It was. It was weird. Like I found out that my one character was actually a creation. He made him. He was a uh, uh, <laughs> basically his sacralum. Like I was, I was my old character's Horcrux. So if I ever went completely off the grid rogue, I could never destroy him because we were like inseparably linked because like we were bound in that respect. We would have destroyed each other. Oh man. That was pretty wild. I'm not going to lie. I, I, so I do like doing that too. I like, 
so I like pulling in the occasional old character. Uh, so I like leaving them around, I guess, as part of the part and parcel of that. Um, you can end a, a high level campaign and I've ended a few of them. You can end it with everyone dying a heroic death. So long as everyone's happy with that, that's great. I, I think guess. it's a little more gratifying to end it with them going to the next level of something. You know, a lot of my, a lot yeah. of my, in, in the first high level campaign I ever wrapped up, uh, and, and for your answer, Dave, and in second edition, even though you theoretically could go to higher levels and we played with some of that, yeah, we didn't need to, like by the time we hit 20, we were about done, you know? And, this, and, you know, every player is different. Some players want to play their characters up until level 100. A lot of players, and me included, wanted to start the next thing at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, um, right, yeah. So it depends on your party here a lot. But in that game, Alhazred, I believe, became a god of magic. The cleric became literally the um, the avatar of his deity who went to all the prime material planes to carry out uh, Moradin's will. And the one werewolf character became a great king of the earth. You know, those are the three I remember. So they each kind of had a heroic, kind of like King Conan, kind of yes. next step where they went on to the next thing they wanted to do. That was a match to what they had done in the game. Like, I feel like, you know, Matt's character, the, the cleric, he wanted to be that avatar. Tony's character wanted to be his own god. You know, I, I feel like those things lined up with each other. And, and so, like, that's I tend to try to round off that way. And then you have them around, if you ever want to do an all-star campaign, which I know, Tony, you've done a few times, where you bring out the all-star guns to do, like, a one-shot. So they're there. Or you can have them as NPCs in other games, which players usually like and I enjoy, personally, you know? I saw a, uh, just funny enough, it just because it, it goes with the whole all-star idea and the, and the what do you do with high-level characters at that point, you know? I saw uh, Mike Merles, I think it was for, like, one of these, I don't know, Dragon Con or something, but he ran a little one-shot, like 20th level one-shot with uh, Luke Gygax was there. He was playing Melf. Uh, so he was playing Gary's, one of his original elf person, male elf. Uh, Joe Manganiello was there with his uh, Arcan character. Like a couple like big names were there with like these just massive, like just all guns blasting dudes. And like, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Once you've built it, your Hall of Fame is a really powerful resource you can use as a DM. Once you have your group and you have these old characters that everyone knows and they're familiar with and they mean something to them, not necessarily that they love them, maybe it's some villains around, but that kind of, you know, keep your really memorable guys in like your own campaign party uh, group Hall of Fame and then pull them in every now and then. I think it's, I think it totally pays off. Well, it's one of the reasons I, um, I'm attempting to every single game I run no matter what it is, is happening somehow, somewhere in my world that I've created. And this this actually pulls off of the the campaign that started with Bonnie's uh, family. I actually took that as, in essence, the beginning of my world, but like from way long ago ideas. So like, <laughs> no matter where I am, I just, I'm placing it somewhere on the globe. So all these things can, maybe I can pull, like you're saying, you can pull from that stuff because that lore is there. Kind of like we were talking about the quantum over thing. I, I just want to, is it, we had a DM who wrote it and just got a campaign go for four years. Like Thorne and I were in a, another campaign where we died like every two or three games. And I got to tell you, that is not rewarding. So, I mean, if you some sometimes a campaign needs to end and I understand that and maybe the only way it can end is if the characters are literally killed off so it stops because mm-hmm. otherwise these guys will never drop this idea but 
I, I had another buddy who uh, had a, a third edition campaign that he was really happy with, and they wanted to start playing fourth, so the DM killed them all off. And he's like, what in the actual shit? Like, I, like, it I over. <laughs> Just transfer it over. Just put it on pause. Come back to it. Or transfer yeah. them over into fourth edition. Night no, out, no, they were all killed. That one incredibly nasty random encounter. You want to play my other campaign now? I'm like, no, I don't want to play with you as a DM. Get the hell out of here. Oh, I, would also say, <laughs> I, I would say going from third to fourth, probably there's a good chance if the players were invested in those characters, the third to fourth transition might not have been rewarding. Because third edition is very crunchy, very customizable. Fourth edition yeah. was the opposite. And it was, I mean, it was super crunchy, but it was also super limited. It was more like playing in a minis game or like Magic the Gathering. Like you had, so I don't know that that transition would have worked. I just would have put it on pause. So, hey guys, we'll come back yeah. to this later. Yeah. Put that character in a, in a file and, you know, maybe one day, six months from now, we'll pop that out and do something with them. And it's a, that's a good point. I was, I, that's what I was saying earlier with the idea with the Strahd thing where, it, you know, I have concepts of what might open up, but we might say, let's. Let's put a pin in it right now, you know? So there's some other questions here Shane has, but I think, you know, we've been going on for a bit. Maybe we come back later and answer some of Shane's other questions in a single uh, podcast about high-level campaigns. We actually haven't hit this yet. We've done a bit of it. I have some ideas. So let's do that. Let's put a pin in that and come back to that. Sound good? Sounds good. All right, then let's round up with some final thoughts on the stuff we've talked about today, including downtime. And if you want to hit your quantum ogre one more time, go for it. Okay, so yes, I think uh, I liked uh, the, the point made earlier that uh, a lot of what we do is kind of like a magician, like literally it's magic. We have this illusion that we're super well prepared for everything. And that is not always true. But I also completely agree that uh, you must... The players need to feel like everything that they do has a degree of meaning to it, or there is really no point. You will really lose your player investment because of that. In terms of downtime, I mean, it's like anything. You can make it as meaningful as you'd like it to be, as involved as you'd like it to be, as your style as a DM. Um, it, I would, I traditionally have a very training-focused DM uh, in previous years, I'm not so much now anymore. Like, my players aren't interested in, like, their characters. Okay, they just finished the module. Now they're going to go train. Eh. At one point, everybody was really into that. Now, I, I don't feel that so much, and the mechanics don't really support it. So that's where I would use that opportunity to let them have some neat roleplay opportunities, some character development opportunities, and maybe furthering some side quests or even the main plot. In terms of the Quantum Ogre thing, since we started on that, so I'll start my final thoughts. Mm. I would seriously, because I, I would love to hear what what everyone thinks about this. Because, like we said, we had not heard about this at all. We didn't realize <laughs> that we were already on. I will still say, our concepts, like we talk about on the show here, of Schrodinger's encounter, let's say, Schrodinger's whatever. I I feel it's very very different from the quantum ogre thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so go check it out, read the article, let us know what you think. Um. Because we'd like to know. I, I, I think that there's something very specifically different about that. Because uh, none of us here are about taking away player agency. So if that's what people are experiencing, then you know we're not down with that. So that's that. Downtime, know your table. Because, like Tony was just saying, aside from the everyday stuff, like, so Thorne, you kind of broke it out between everyday and then the big high arching stuff. Everyday stuff, that's no problem. There, we just We went over a bunch of ways to do that. The higher levels, the higher overarching downtime, that's going to be different. Your players might love the taxman 
that never that he's just hounding you <laughs> the way the general was hounding the A team, right? Um, <laughs> or like the uh, the investigative journalist was hounding Decker. the Incredible Hulk, right? Like, so that could be cool. Like we talked about, there's a lot of ideas that conceptually we think are awesome and we know probably wouldn't play in actual play because Thorne, as you've said many times, 5e especially is really about getting to play with all of your shiny tool toys that you get. And downtime doesn't really feed into that. So I think in the end, know your table with that. So... All right. And for me, uh, my final thoughts, I'm not going to beat the Quantum Ogre anymore to life slash death. Uh, I, so look, my real final thoughts are more about downtime. And you know, as we've talked about it, we've talked about the way we've done it in the past and done it here. What I'm really realizing is the players drive the downtime. Listen for what your players are talking about doing. If your players are coming to you and saying, hey, I'd like to make a weapon. Hey, I'd like to make a spell. Hey, I'd like to do some research. Make some time for downtime. Think through how you want to handle it. You do want to think it through a little bit. We've hopefully given you some advice on how to do that. Uh, we talked about that a little bit. But just spend some time. Think about, okay, how's that? how do I want that to work? And then give them some downtime they can play with to do the things they want to do. If your players aren't looking for that and you want to keep going with the story, that's fine. That'll keep them interested in moving forward. If you have something you want them to explore with downtime, I think you can offer it to them and see what they do with it. So keep that in mind. Like whether downtime is fun or not has a lot to do with the players and a little more, and also a little bit to do with, you know, what, how do you fill it? And like, what kind of ideas do you have? If you have great ideas for that, get them in there, see what players do with it. Otherwise just, you know, try to facilitate what the players want to accomplish and try to balance it without, without letting it break your game. So that's it for this episode of three wise DMS, Dave, Tony, thanks again, man. It's that was a lot of fun talking about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Got our sparring in with the Quantum Ogre. And all of you listening from home, thank you very much for joining us on another episode of Three Wise DMs. Once again, today's topic was brought to us by Shane's email and also by people yelling at us in the Facebook comments. So do both of those things. We would love to hear your opinions and your questions. You can reach us on Facebook and Twitter through threewisedms at gmail.com. Uh, through, through Instagram, where uh, you know uh, there's some cool stuff we have going up there. And through the form field on our website a website is threewisedms.com and the field is called the what's your problem field besides that please give us a rating give us a five-star rating give us a review whatever podcast platform you're listening in those really help us they help us get the word out and they help bring new audience in we've been growing by leaps and bounds and it's really because you have been helping us and, and thank you all very much for that you know give us a like share it with your friends so we'll see you next week for another episode of three wise dms